Chapter Two of The Longest Journey by E. M. Forster. Read for you by Julie Pandia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. To find out more or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Longest Journey, Chapter Two. A little this side of Mattingly, to the left of the road, there is a secluded dell paved with grass and planted with fir-trees. It could not have been worth a visit twenty years ago, for then it was only a scar of chalk, and it is not worth a visit at the present day, for the trees have grown too thick and choked it. But when Rickie was up, it chanced to be the brief season of its romance, a season as brief for a chalk-pit as a man, its divine interval between the bareness of boyhood and the stuffiness of age. Rickie had discovered it in his second term, when the January snows had melted and left fjords and lagoons of clearest water between the inequalities of the floor. The place looked as big as Switzerland or Norway, as indeed for the moment it was, and he came upon it at a time when his life too was beginning to expand. Accordingly the dell became for him a kind of church, a church where indeed you could do anything you liked, but where you, anything you did would be transfigured. Like the ancient Greeks, he could even laugh at his holy place, and leave it no less holy. He chatted gaily about it, and about the pleasant thoughts with which it inspired him. He took his friends there. He even took people whom he did not like. "'Procol este profani!' exclaimed a delighted esthete on being introduced to it. But this was never to be the attitude of Ricky. He did not love the vulgar herd, but he knew that his own vulgarity would be greater if he forbade it ingress, and that it was not by preciosity that he would attain to the intimate spirit of the dell. Indeed, if he had agreed with the estate, he would possibly not have introduced him. If the dell was to bear any inscription, he would have liked it to be, This way to heaven, painted on a signpost by the high road, and he did not realize till later years that the number of visitors would not thereby have sensibly increased. On the blessed Monday that the Pembrokes left, he walked out here with three friends. It was a day when the sky seemed enormous. One cloud as large as a continent was voyaging near the sun, whilst other clouds seemed anchored to the horizon, too lazy or too happy to move. The sky itself was of the palest blue, paling to white where it approached the earth, and the earth, brown, wet, and odorous, was engaged beneath it on its yearly duty of decay. Ricky was open to the complexities of autumn. He felt extremely tiny extremely tiny and extremely important and perhaps the combination is as fair as any that exists he hoped that all his life he would never be peevish or unkind elliot is in a dangerous state said ansell they had reached the dell and had stood for some time in silence each leaning against a tree it was too wet to sit down how's that asked rickie who had not known he was in any state at all he shut up keats whom he thought he had been reading and slipped him back into his coat pocket scarcely ever was he without a book he is trying to like people then he's done for said widdrington he's dead he's trying to like hornblower the others gave shrill agonized cries he wants to buy in the college together he wants to link us to the beefy set i do like hornblower he protested i don't try and hornblower tries to like you that part doesn't matter but he does try to like you he tries not to despise you it is altogether a most public-spirited affair. Tillard started them, said Woodrington. Tillard thinks it's such a pity the college should be split into sets. Oh, Tillard, said Ansell, with much irritation. But what can you expect from a person who is eternally beautiful? 
The other night we had been discussing a long time, and suddenly the light was turned on. Everyone else looked at sight, as they ought. But there was Tillard, sitting neatly on a little chair, like an undersized god, with not a curl crooked. I should say he will get into the foreign office. "'Why are most of us so ugly?' laughed Rickie. "'It's merely a sign of our salvation, merely another sign that the college is split.' "'The college isn't split,' cried Rickie, who got excited on the subject with unfailing regularity. "'The college is, and has been, and always will be one. "'What you call the beefy set aren't a set at all. "'They're just the rowing people, and naturally they chiefly see each other, "'but they're always nice to me or to anyone. "'Of course, they think us rather asses, but it's quite in a pleasant way.' "'That's my whole objection,' said Ansel. "'What right have they to think us asses in a pleasant way?' Why don't they hate us? What right has Hornblower to smack me on the back when I've been rude to him? Well, what right have you to be rude to him? Because I hate him. You think it is so splendid to hate no one. I tell you, it is a crime. You want to love everyone equally, and that's worse than impossible. It's wrong. When you denounce sets, you're really trying to destroy friendship. I maintain, said Rickie. It was a verb he clung to in the hope that it would lend stability to what followed. I maintain that one can like many more people than one supposes. And I maintain that you hate many more people than you pretend. I hate no one, he exclaimed with extraordinary vehemence, and the dull re-echoed that it hated no one. We are obliged to believe you, said Widrington, smiling a little, but we are sorry about it. Not even your father, asked Ansel. Rickie was silent. Not even your father? The cloud above extended a great promontory across the sun. It only lay there for a moment, yet that was enough to summon the lurking coldness from the earth. "'Does he hate his father?' said Woodrington, who had not known. "'Oh, good!' "'But his father's dead. He will say it doesn't count. "'Still it's something. Do you hate yours?' Ansel did not reply. Ricky said, "'I say, I wonder whether one ought to talk like this.' "'About hating dead people?' "'Yes.' "'Did you hate your mother?' asked Woodrington. Ricky turned crimson. "'I don't see Hornblower is such a rotter,' remarked the other man, whose name was James. "'James, you are diplomatic,' said Ansel. "'You're trying to tide over an awkward moment. You can go.' Woodrington was crimson, too. In his wish to be sprightly, he had used words without thinking of their meanings. Suddenly he realized that father and mother really meant father and mother, people whom he had himself at home. He was very uncomfortable and thought Ricky had been rather queer.' He, too, tried to revert to Hornblower, but Ansel would not let him. The sun came out and struck on the white ramparts of the dell. Ricky looked straight at it. Then he said abruptly, "'I think I want to talk.' "'I think you do,' replied Ansel. "'Shouldn't I be rather a fool if I went through Cambridge without talking? It's said never to come so easy again. All the people are dead, too. I can't see why I shouldn't tell you most things about my birth and parentage and education. "'Talk away. If you bore us, we have books.' With this invitation, Ricky began to relate his history. The reader who has no book will be obliged to listen to it. Some people spend their lives in a suburb, and not for any urgent reason. This had been the fate of Ricky. He had opened his eyes to filmy heavens and taken his first walk on asphalt. He had seen civilization as a row of semi-detached villas, and society as a state in which men do not know the men who live next door. He had himself become part of the grey monotony that surrounds all cities. There was no necessity for this. It was only rather convenient to his father. Mr. Elliot was a barrister. In appearance he resembled his son, being weakly and lame, with hollow little cheeks, a broad white band of forehead, and stiff, impoverished hair. 
His voice, which he did not transmit, was very suave with a fine command of cynical intonation. By altering it ever so little he could make people wince, especially if they were simple or poor. Nor did he transmit his eyes. Their peculiar flatness, as if the soul looked through dirty window-panes, the unkindness of them, the cowardice, the fear in them, were to trouble the world no longer. He married a girl whose voice was beautiful. There was no caress in it, yet all who heard it were soothed, as though the world held some unexpected blessing. She called her dogs one night over invisible waters, and he, a tourist up on the bridge, thought, "'That is extraordinarily adequate.' In time he discovered that her figure, face, and thoughts were adequate also, and as she was not impossible socially, he married her. "'I have taken a plunge,' he told his family. The family, hostile at first, had not a word to say when the woman was introduced to them, and his sister declared that the plunge had been taken from the opposite bank. Things only went right for a little time. Though beautiful without and within, Mrs. Elliot had not the gift of making her home beautiful, and one day, when she bought a carpet for the dining-room that clashed, he laughed gently, said he really couldn't, and departed. Departure is perhaps too strong a word. In Mrs. Elliot's mouth it became, "'My husband has to sleep more in town.' He often came down to see them, nearly always unexpectedly, and occasionally they went to see him. "'Father's house,' as Ricky called it, only had three rooms.' but these were full of books and pictures and flowers, and the flowers, instead of being squashed down into vases as they were in Mummy's house, rose gracefully from frames of lead which lay coiled at the bottom, as doubtless the sea serpent has to lie coiled at